Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. The title of our study this morning, the thought that I was impressed to talk about and to share is, uh, who is your high priest? Who is your high priest? Now that might be a very obvious, easy question to answer. But I want us to explore that question a little bit, maybe from some angles that have not been uh, looked at before by yourself. Perhaps maybe you have, and a revision and a reminder might be good. But that's a question we want to keep in mind. Who is your high priest? There is no question that Christ Jesus is our high priest. But I want us to think on that in a way that perhaps will be applicable to us in a practical manner. Now, I think we all know that... uh, The sanctuary truth is the foundation and the pillar of our faith. We're told that a number of times. It is the great house that houses the truth that we believe in. And in Psalm 77, if you have your Bibles, we'll use our Bibles together today. Psalm 77, a familiar text, but I want us to look at that because there is a particular word I want us to note here as we look at this foundation, the sanctuary. Now, the sanctuary is a very, very deep and vast topic. Psalm 77 and verse 13. And the Bible here tells us, Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? God's way is in the sanctuary. And uh, this, of course, tells us that everything that God does and everything that encompasses the truth is found in the sanctuary. And as Adventists, as Seventh-day Adventists, we take great pride in believing and the fact that we believe in the sanctuary. That's a very important Adventist hallmark, the sanctuary. And you know, uh, we want to look a little deeper at that today because I want to challenge you with some thoughts and I want to challenge myself as well with some thoughts. Sometimes it's good to take pride in what we believe, but sometimes that pride can tend to uh, dangerous ground. And uh, we'll hopefully see that as we go along. But uh, the Bible here tells us that God's way is in the sanctuary. Now turn over to Romans chapter 11. And we'll look at a text that uses the same word. And we'll draw a conclusion from there. Romans chapter 11 and verse 33. Romans chapter 11. Paul here writing. And he tells us about something about God's way or God's ways. Romans 11 and verse 33. And the apostle here tells us, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. So God's way is in the sanctuary and God's ways are past finding out. Isn't that beautiful? That means that the sanctuary is a topic that is beyond our full comprehension. Isn't that right? It's a vast, deep topic that we will spend eternity studying and learning. And not one person has complete understanding of the sanctuary, not all of us even. We all can have some insights and some uh, aspects of it that we can understand, but there is a vast eternity beyond. And I want us to keep that thought in mind as we look at this particular topic, that God's ways in the sanctuary, but at the same time, God's ways are past finding out. That, that, That doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to find them out. But it just should remind us to be humble and that it is beyond our full comprehension. But God encourages us to study and to understand. Well, let's 
look at an aspect of God just quickly here. You know, God is unchangeable. We're, to, we're told that. Uh, in the book of Revelation, we're given an interesting verse. I don't know how much you have pondered this verse. Revelation verse tw chapter 21, the very back of the Bible, towards the very end, we're given a verse that talks about the sanctuary or about the temple. And I find it a very interesting verse. Revelation chapter 21, speaking here of uh, the new earth, at the end of chapter 21 there, verse 22, Revelation 21 and verse 22, the Bible here tells us, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. Ever ponder on that verse? We're told that in the end, after sin is all finished, there is no temple therein, doesn't say there's no temple at all. It just says there's no temple therein. But the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. That's how many people? That's two individuals are the temple. You know, things with God don't change. As we said, God is changeless. And the fact that God and the Son, the Father and the Son, are the temple after sin also means that the temple at the very beginning was also the Father and the and the sun. Now that doesn't deny the fact that there is an actual sanctuary and there is a temple, but we have to keep something in mind. We generally tend as Adventists to focus on the building and on the structure too much. Especially when someone starts saying, well, I don't believe in section heaven, so we emphasize that all the more. And we seem perhaps to miss something that is of significance. And that's what I want to remind us of today. So in the beginning, as it will be in the end, the Father and the Son were the sanctuary. They were the temple. They were the ultimate house of all truth. Because that's what the sanctuary is, isn't that right? And the sanctuary represents that for us. And when we look at uh, the fact that God made man in his image, we find that in so doing, God intended for man also to be a temple. To be inhabited by himself. God intended that all his creatures, from the highest angel to, to man, would be a temple for his presence. I want us to note something interesting here that I don't want us to miss. It tells us that the Father and the Son are the temple, and man was made in the image of God. In other words, man was created in the image of the Father and the Son only, without any additions. That was the original temple, and man was made in the image and likeness of God. And in the fall of man, we have an insight as to what happened to the temple. Uh, but you remember, there's something I want to share with you. When, uh, in the story of Adam and Eve, I remember when I was little, and uh, you know, we go through the Bible stories, and, and the story of Adam and Eve is, is among the first, of course. And I found it interesting as I kind of grew up that Adam and Eve, I found, were always represented in the pictures as wearing nothing. And of course, the artist would be, uh, you know, would place them and place certain uh, items in the picture to make it appropriate so that, you know, they're, they're modest, you know, certain leaves are covering certain things. You know what I'm talking about? And, you know, I find that that particular representation is, is, is interesting, but it's not accurate. It's not really biblical. They were not stark naked. Uh, even though the Bible says they were naked, they were not ashamed. But we need to understand what that means because it actually has insight as to this whole aspect of the temple being the Father and the Son and them being made in the image and likeness of God. If we go to Psalms 104, I had this discussion once with someone and, and that's, that's what prompted uh, my thinking along these lines because I shared with them, Psalm 104 we're going to, I shared with them and I said, you know, Adam and Eve were not stark naked. They, 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 they had garments uh, of light 
And the Spirit of Prophecy says that very, very plainly. Uh, and then they challenge me and they say, it doesn't say that in the Bible. The Bible says they were naked. And that in their mind, they felt that they, they had no clothes on at all. And uh, so I was challenged with this thought. And then Psalm 104 is actually a place where we can demonstrate that Adam and Eve wore garments of light. Psalm 104, and we'll look at verse 2. Now notice carefully here, because the parallel, uh, the parallel is significant. Speaking of God, the Bible says, Who covers thyself with light, as with a garment, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. So speaking of God, it tells us that God covers himself with light, as with a garment. And the Bible also tells us that God dwelleth in light, unapproachable. And so when God created Adam and Eve, he made them in his image. They also were covered with light, as with a garment. And the fact uh, is that when Adam and Eve ate from the tree, uh, the light went out on both levels, physically and spiritually. Let's go to Genesis 3, and we want to also look at a principle that comes out here and see how that helps us today as we progress. Genesis chapter 3. Is there significance to the fact that Adam and Eve wore garments of light? There's great significance, and we miss it when we uh, don't recognize that fact. Genesis chapter 3. Of course, you know the story, but let's read it together. Verse 6 and 7. It says, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took up the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Okay, they ate from the tree, and the lights went out. But there is an order, there is a progression here that is very significant. Have you ever noticed that when Eve ate from the tree, the light did not go out? It was only when Adam ate... And after that, that the light went out. There is a progression here. There is a sequence of events There is important. You see, Eve ate first of all. We all know that. And uh, maybe we'll back up just a little bit. It's important to remember that this light, this covering of light, represented that they are a temple inhabited by, by God, by the presence of God. The physical light was a representation of a spiritual reality on the inside that is not visible physically. And this is, this is the aspect of the light that is important for us. And so when Eve ate from the tree, by eating from the tree, it was an indication of joining the rebellion of Satan. Somehow, someway, she believed the lie, and she chose Satan over God, thereby really extinguishing the inner light or the presence of God on the inside. But notice something here. When that is extinguished on the inside, not immediately does the light on the outside go out. There is a bit of a delay or there is a bit of a lag. And that's important to keep in mind. So she ate, she gave to Adam, he ate. And then it was after that that the light went out. So the physical representation now of the spiritual loss that they experienced was apparent. The lights went out. And it was God's plan that he would dwell in mankind. But sadly, because of sin now, humanity ceased to be a temple for the dwelling of divinity. Humanity now was darkened and defiled by evil. And the heart of man no longer was in harmony with God. And we see that in the lights going out. And that's totally missed, really, when, when we don't recognize that there was a light aspect, the physical and the spiritual. And I want us to think of Adam and Eve and, obviously, all of humanity, really, because all of humanity was, was in Adam. 
as a temple that had now, the lights were extinguished out of that temple. Inside and outside. That's God's intention for mankind. I want us to think uh, of us, of humanity as a sanctuary. And now the sanctuary was darkened. There was no more light. And this was a very woeful situation. No longer could Adam and Eve reflect the divine presence. A very significant problem. And uh, this aspect of the spiritual going out before the physical has happened time and again all through history. And it's important to keep in mind because it helps us recognize things today as well. It's a principle that always operates. You remember the, uh, the sanctuary in Israel that was built, the first sanctuary that was built. It was destroyed by which nations? Anyone remember? It was Babylon, that's right. Remember when uh, the captivity happened, Babylon destroyed Solomon's temple. But uh, when that temple was destroyed, it actually shows that the people had gone astray long before. Isn't that right? And this, even though the temple was standing for some time, and then after a while, that temple was destroyed. There was a physical representation of a spiritual loss that they had experienced before that. That's significant to keep in mind. The same thing happened again to Zerubbabel's temple. Zerubbabel's temple was destroyed by who? Anyone remember? The next temple was destroyed by Rome. Isn't that right? Yes, by Titus in, in the siege of, of Jerusalem. And once again, when that sanctuary was destroyed, the people had already, some time before that, lost the inner light. They had rejected the, the Messiah. So that always happens. The physical comes after the spiritual. And it's not when the physical is destroyed is there a problem then and there. The problem has actually happened before. The spiritual loss has happened before that. That's important to keep in mind as we shall see as we go along. Anyway, so now God had a situation on his hands. The temple that he had built to inhabit was darkened. It was defiled. He had two choices, either to cast it off or to seek to restore it. Thankfully, he chose to restore it. He had a plan in place, and that plan incorporated a restoration of the temple, a cleansing and reclaiming of the earthly temple, humanity. And of course, this work could be done by the only one who could do that cleansing. 2 Corinthians tells us that. Let's go there. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Of course, that's Christ. But I want us to see what language is used here. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. <clears throat> No, the, the temple or the sanctuary can only be reclaimed and restored by the one who built it to begin with. He's the only one who is qualified to do that. And that's important. The qualification is important to keep in mind. Second Corinthians 4, 6, it says, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. Christ is the only means that can bring to us the light of God. That was first demonstrated in the creation of Adam and Eve. And so when they lost the light, the only way to restore that light, to rekindle the light in the temple, has to be also through Jesus Christ and no one else. Now you might say, well, we all know that and we all believe that. That's great. But there are deep implications for us today as far as that is concerned. And that's what we want to explore together. So the light can only be kindled by someone who can kindle that. And the Bible tells us the only one who does kindle the light of God is Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can 
cleanse and reclaim that temple. We see that in the story of Christ when he was on earth, John chapter 2. We had two incidents in the life of Christ, and this is where it starts getting a little bit more personal. Two incidents in the life of Christ that demonstrate very clearly his mission and his intent as far as the restoration of the temple on earth. John chapter 2, we have the first one. Gospel of John chapter 2, reading from verses 15 and 16. John 2 verse 15 says, And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. Now, this was a very graphic illustration of really the mission of Christ. I think we all know that. But I want us to look at it carefully again. What had happened in the temple in Jerusalem at the time with all these sellers and all these merchants and all these defiling things was really a picture of what had happened to the temple of humanity. It was inhabited by those who were not supposed to be there. And Christ's mission in coming and cleansing the temple indicated, the temple of of Jerusalem then, indicated his work of cleansing the earthly temple, that is humanity, cleaning the heart of mankind. This is really what was happening. And these false merchants, uh, all this merchandising, the the driving force in the merchandising that was taking place there in the temple in Jerusalem, all the extortion and all the corruption that was taking place, the driving force, if you could put one name to it, it is selfish greed. Isn't that right? And that was the problem that had happened in the earthly temple. Self had come in and Christ's mission was to come in and to cleanse that temple, clean it all out, and re-inhabit it by His Spirit. And he did that twice, actually, at the beginning of his uh, mission on earth and also at the end of his mission on earth. Let's go to Matthew 21 and see the other incident when that happened. And this was really the mission and the plan of God to reclaim the temple of mankind. Matthew chapter 21. And notice the language that is used here. I find it very interesting. The language that is used, Matthew chapter 21, reading from verse 12 down to 14. It says, And Jesus went into the temple of God. That's the original owner, isn't that right? And cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple. Here it is, occupied by strangers. And overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves, and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. What a beautiful picture. So cleansing from those who do not belong there, he removes them. He says, this is my house, called the house of prayer. And when that cleansing happens, then all these ailments, all these people are ill, they come and they are healed. You can just imagine heaven is looking down and the whole universe is looking at this picture. Christ is actually in the sanctuary cleaning out and then these people come to heal uh, to him and they are healed. And this is really a picture of what Christ was going to do to the human heart, to each and every human heart. He is asserting very, very strongly his mission as the one who will reclaim the temple. This was a, a battle moment, really, if you could read between the lines. 
you know, the kingdom of darkness was, uh, this was showdown time. And Christ twice did that. Now, a very, very important thing to keep in mind, I don't want us to miss this because in missing that, we miss a very important aspect, is that when Christ cleansed the sanctuary and the temple, he did that himself without any help. Isn't that right? He didn't say, you know, Peter over there, you watch this door, Andrew over that end, and we're going to drive them out, did he? No, he did that himself. He did not delegate that work to anyone else. Because he is the only one who is qualified to do that work. Now that's very, very significant because there is a very important practical application of that today, as we shall see. But I want us to keep that point in mind, that the work of cleansing and reclaiming the sanctuary, cleansing out all these false merchants and all these evils in the human heart, is the work of Christ alone. Because he's the only one that can bring the light of the knowledge of God. Now, the beautiful thing about the two cleansings of the sanctuary that I find very encouraging is that Christ does not give up easily. You know, he cleansed the sanctuary the first time, and then, you know, they came back again. And he didn't come the second time and say, forget it. You know, these guys, they just don't learn. He cleansed the sanctuary again. You know, the beautiful lesson I see here, Christ is a persistent Savior. You know, if you backslide and, and your sanctuary gets filled up with all kinds of junk and rubbish, Christ is a persistent Savior. He doesn't give up. He will come and cleanse again. Every time we are willing, He will come and do the cleansing. That's very, very encouraging. He doesn't give up easy. He's relentless in His pursuit of restoring the sanctuary. So that's a nice practical aspect that we can take home today. So uh, if you have refilled your temple with a lot of junk, Christ can still cleanse it, even if he has already cleansed it before and you messed up. He still can cleanse it. He cleansed the earthly sanctuary twice. A beautiful lesson for us here. And uh, this is what the scripture refers to when it says that uh, the messenger of the covenant will come suddenly to his temple. The messenger that you seek. He comes to his temple in order to reclaim it, to cleanse it. So this is the creation and this is the recreation that we find here, the restoration. And uh, just as it was with Adam and Eve and the picture that we see in the earthly sanctuary, so also there is a picture at the end of the mission of Christ that clearly demonstrates what he had accomplished. Let's go to John chapter 20 and see another beautiful parallel that this time parallels with what happened in the Garden of Eden. John chapter 20. John chapter 20. And we will read verse 22. John chapter 20. And verse 22, it says, When we had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. We're all familiar with this verse. But you know, this verse is a direct parallel to when Christ breathed into Adam the breath of life, and Adam became a living soul. This is the restoration of that life that Adam had lost. You see, Adam lost the light inside and outside. He lost the life. And Christ came, he cleanses the sanctuary twice to demonstrate his mission to reclaim humanity. And when that mission is accomplished, he comes to his disciples, now his followers, his believers, that represents all of us, and then he breathes the breath of life again. That's what the Holy Spirit is, isn't that right? A recreation, a new life, a reclaiming of the, of the temple or of the sanctuary to be a place of habitation for Christ, the true minister of the sanctuary. And this is really what... Christ earned when he came to earth. He demonstrated that he is indeed the true minister of the sanctuary, 
are of the temple. In Hebrews chapter 2, we're told that. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 2 and just have a look here at the significance of that as well. Hebrews chapter 2. <clears throat> then we're going to see how all this fits with our understanding of the sanctuary. Hebrews chapter 2. Christ became a minister and high priest for his people. Verse 17, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 says, Wherefore, in all things, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Here is the purpose, one of the purposes of the mission of Christ, of why he became like unto his brethren, is so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. And a high priest is, of course, someone who functions in a temple or a sanctuary. If you have a high priest, you automatically have a place for him to, to work, to function, and that's his sanctuary. And this is the problem that I find today amongst us uh, as, as Adventists, and I use that term to refer to any and every person who has any claim on that name, uh, in or out or on the side or all, all brands, okay, you know what I mean? We tend to think and focus very much on the sanctuary doctrine as a belief in a building in heaven where Christ is ministering. And that is very good and that is very true and that is very important. But somehow the devil has caused us to miss the connection between the heavenly and the earthly, which is really of great significance because it was the earthly temple, humanity, that was to be restored. And it's humanity that Christ wants to be the high priest of and minister of. And you know, we're told in the book of Ages that while Christ ministers in the sanctuary above, still by his spirit, the minister of the church on earth. We are told that. And the devil has through... A very popular lie today has obscured that fact. And this is why we're asking the question, who is your high priest? Not only who is your high priest in the temple in heaven, who is your high priest in this temple here? Because the Bible tells us that we are the temple of God. Isn't that right? Paul says, don't you know that your body is the temple of God? The temple of the Holy Spirit and that God dwells in you? And uh, we're told that we are God's building. We're also told in Peter that we are lively stones built together. We know all these verses, all these references. And the question is, in this temple, who is the high priest? Who is your high priest? You know, sadly today, Adventists who pride themselves in believing the doctrine of the sanctuary, the biblical doctrine of the sanctuary, have a theology that denies that Christ is the high priest of this temple. You realize that? The common and popular belief today is that the high priest of this temple is someone called God, the Holy Spirit. Isn't that right? And there is an ascent, there is a mental ascent that yes, there is a sanctuary in heaven. Christ is the minister of the sanctuary in heaven. But he said that there is someone else that he will send. And of course, the, the belief, the misunderstanding that the Spirit of God is someone else completely destroys the work of Christ that he intends to do in reclaiming and cleansing this earthly sanctuary. In Hebrews chapter 5, we're given a qualification. Hebrews 2.17, we just read it. Christ became a, uh, like unto his brethren in order to be a high priest. But in chapter 5, 
we have another qualification that eliminates anyone else from filling that role. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 1, it tells us, For every high priest is taken from where? From among men, is ordained for men and things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. Here we're told that in order for a person to be a high priest for men, he has to be taken from men. That's one of the reasons why Christ became a man. So it is biblically impossible for anyone other than Christ to be the high priest of this temple. He's the only one who came from heaven and became a man. And this is why the devil has been very, very busy in getting us to give credit for someone else other than Christ for the work that is done here. You know, I had someone, I was talking to someone once, and uh, I, I said, you know, where, where is Christ? And he said, well, Christ is ministering in the sanctuary uh, in heaven above. And I said, well, that's, that's good. Praise the Lord. What about us here? Who, who is here in my heart? Is that Christ? And he said, no, that's the Holy Spirit. And their understanding, the Holy Spirit is someone other than Christ. You see what has happened here? The devil has deceived God's people into thinking that they are safe and secure because they believe the sanctuary doctrine over there and that Christ is ministering over there. And yet at the same time, we are denying a fundamental aspect of the work of Christ and denying him being the high priest of the temple here. We're told that while he ministers above, he is still by his spirit the minister on earth. And this is why it was important to emphasize the fact that when Christ cleansed the temple on earth twice, he never delegated that work to anyone else. He did it himself. Christ does not delegate the work of cleansing the soul temple to anyone else today. He is the only one who is qualified to do it. And so, that's the question I want to challenge you with. Do you have the true high priest? Now you might sit there and say, yes, well, I don't believe in that false concept. I believe Christ is the true son of God. But do you really have the true high priest ministering in your sanctuary today? Because believing that is not just a mental ascent to a, an idea. It has to be a living reality. And it has to demonstrate fruit. It is absolutely pointless for us as Adventists to keep saying how happy we are believing in the sanctuary doctrine when the fruits of Christ as the high priest is not seen in this temple. That's the whole point of the sanctuary doctrine, isn't that right? We have reduced it into a theory of, I believe there is a building in heaven and Christ is right there, light years away. And we have missed the connection. The work that Christ is doing in the, in the temple above has to parallel the work that is happening in this temple here. If it doesn't, then all we have is a useless theory that only gives us a false carnal security. And this is the problem that we have today. You know, this is the thing I always wondered, you know, people we have in Australia, as, as you, know, you know, Ford was from Australia and the whole you know, sanctuary in heaven. And uh, people, oh, this person doesn't believe there is a, a sanctuary in heaven. Oh, that's a heresy. And, and all, everyone else, you know, they strengthen in their belief. No, well, I believe there is a sanctuary in heaven. But it, the whole argument, the whole heresy and not heresy is over that temple and what's going on there. But what about what's going on here? Is the high priest working here? And this is what we are called to do. Hebrews chapter 3, to consider Christ and to give him the due credit and to demonstrate that we are a, re a reclaimed temple indeed or we're just a temple still full of buyers and sellers that professes to be reclaimed while it is not. Hebrews chapter 3, 
one of the most beautiful verses in the scriptures. I really love this verse. Verse 1. After speaking about Christ becoming man, verse 1 in chapter 3 says, Wherefore, holy brethren, isn't that beautiful? Holy brethren, that's, is that what we consider ourselves today? Holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. That's a verse really worth meditating on. It says, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. I want you to do something. I want you to consider the apostle and high priest of our profession. And to consider, what does consider mean? Think about, meditate on, you know, really spend time considering to look carefully at Christ as the high priest and apostle of our profession. And you know, the sad fact is we tend too often to consider him as the high priest and apostle over there. Isn't that right? And whenever we talk about the sanctuary, we always think somewhere else. It's, it's over there. And, and, and we have this, this great pride in doing that. And we trust that believing that somehow makes us okay. You know, brethren, that's, that's not our faith. Believing that is very important. But unless that translates in our life, do we really believe that? That's the question. So Paul here uh, calls us to consider Christ. I want to challenge you to consider Christ, not just in the temple in heaven, but to consider him as the high priest and apostle of the temple on earth, of your temple, of my temple. This is where he is doing the most important work. Uh, and as we said, the cleansing of the sanctuary, and this is the event that we're all uh, looking forward to because it's one of the important markers in the last days. The cleansing of the sanctuary in heaven has to parallel the cleansing of the sanctuary on earth. It's not just an event that takes place in heaven and we're like, yes, God did it. And then he sends us an announcement. It's done. And then we keep going, move forward. That's not what it's all about. It's about the cleansing of the two. The, the high priest has to work simultaneously on the two fronts. And sadly today, as we said, even though Christ is the only one who can do that work in heaven and in the heart, the devil has come up with a very clever deception that breaks the continuity between the two, that breaks the connection between the two. And this has uh, caused us to be really, really powerless in our efforts as a people, as a collective people. We focus so much on the sanctuary in heaven to the point of forgetting the sanctuary on earth. We focus so much on the high priest working in the most holy place in heaven that we sometimes forget his work in the most holy place here. And this is something that we need to watch for. Satan is very, very clever. And uh, we need to uh, keep that in mind. Let me just quickly turn with you to John chapter 14. Let's go to John chapter 14 and see what else is said here. We know this verse. John chapter 14. And this is where I want you to consider Christ. As Paul says, we need to consider Christ. Consider where he is. And that's a question I want to challenge you and me with. Who is really your high priest? John chapter 14. Did I say 14? I'm sorry, I gave you wrong chapter. John 12. Two chapters before. John chapter 12. And we will look at verse 46. John chapter 12 and verse 46. 
Jesus says, I am come a light into the world that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. What was he talking about? He is the light of the world. He is talking about rekindling the light in the sanctuary that, is, that was now filled with darkness. He says, I am that light. If you believe in me, you should not abide in darkness. He is the light. You see, if you remember, the sanctuary on earth did not have any windows. The only source of light was the inside, the candlesticks. Isn't that right? Of course, it was God's glory. Uh, that, that, that was something that was visible. And so if the light on the inside went out, there was darkness. That's what happened to Adam and Eve. The light went out. And the only way to restore light is to rekindle that light again. So Jesus says, I am the light. You know, when we look at the articles of the sanctuary, we uh, tend to think of the items of furniture, but we have to remember that they represent something. You know, that light, that uh, seven-branch candlestick, is none other than Christ himself. He said, I am the, I am that light. And is Christ really the light in our hearts today? No one else can be. God has not given that light to anyone. The light of the glory of God is only seen in the face of Jesus Christ. You know, considering the articles of, of uh, furniture in the temple, it's important to see that the articles of furniture all fit and apply to us as well, personally, individually. Uh, you know, there was also the table of showbread. What does the bread represent? Christ, isn't that I am the bread that came down from heaven? And Jesus said, you know, to eat, his, to eat his flesh and drink his blood, that's to partake of his word. And his word is not just the ink on the paper here. His word is living and powerful. His word is life, he said. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. That's what it must be for us in the soul. That's the work of Christ as the high priest in the soul temple. That's the, that's the foundation of our faith. You see, when we talk about the sanctuary being the foundation of our faith, it's not just a building. The sanctuary is really God's means of reclaiming the temple of humanity that was now filled with darkness. It's really the gospel. The sanctuary is a living representation of the plan of God to win and restore back again the human temple. It's really the gospel. That's the foundation of our faith. That's what we mean when we talk about the sanctuary. And uh, that's something that uh, I had to really think about and understand because I thought, could it just be, you know, I have a building in heaven. Is that it? Is that the point of the sanctuary? It's not really just that. It must be something for us as well. Uh, what else was there in the sanctuary? There was the altar of incense, isn't that right? What's the altar of incense represent? Prayers, the prayers of the saints. It says that in Revelation. But what else does it represent? Remember the priest on the, on the Day of Atonement, before he went into the, into the most holy place, he took the censer and he had to you know, put the incense there and he had to go in a cloud of incense or smoke. What does that signify? That was a covering of protection for him because he's going into the presence of, of God. You see that smoke, that incense, that prayer of the saints also represents the perfume of the covering of Christ's righteousness that he gives to us, whereby we are enabled to come into the presence of God. Isaiah tells us, you know, God has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He covered me with the, car, uh, with the garments of joy and of praise and of salvation. That's the covering. That's the incense, the righteousness of Christ. What about the veil? 
What does the veil represent? His human nature, his flesh, that's what the Bible tells us. And the veil was rent, his flesh was broken in order to open a way back for us. That's the only way to reconcile man and God. And it's a real tragedy when the devil turns us around into discrediting the work that Christ has done. And we exile him to heaven. And then we say, no, it's someone else who is doing that work here. You know, Christ's body was broken for us. The veil was rent in order to open a way for us. And we turn around and we give credit to someone else. It's no wonder that we have a very big problem today. It is no wonder at all because the devil is very happy for us to think that we're safe believing in a building in heaven while denying the reality of what that should be like in earth. And uh, like I said, that applies to all of us. What about the law? You know, the final part uh, inside the most holy place, there was the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant was the law. What does that signify? God's righteousness, his character, the Bible says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness sake. The law is a living law that is written in our hearts. All the articles of the furniture, all the items in the sanctuary represent Christ doing a work in the heart. That's really what they mean. And finally, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, you remember, there was the, the two Karubim, and in the middle there, there was the, the mercy seat. And on top was the visible presence of God, the Shekinah glory. You know, that's quite something, the, the visible presence of God. Here it is again, physical light that is seen as a symbol of a spiritual reality that exists. Same thing. And of course, the, the parallel for that to us today is what? And we all know the verse, the Bible says, Christ in you, the hope of what? Of glory. You know, glory is something that is, that is visible, that is seen. That is the glory. Christ wants to have the Shekinah glory kindled in this temple. And the question is, is he your high priest? Is there a visible, uh, you know, is there something seen to demonstrate the internal reality? It doesn't mean we're going to shine. That the time will come when that will happen. But there needs to be seen the fruit of his, of his work. So that's the challenge I want you to think of. Who really is your high priest? priest. And that's why we're called upon to consider the apostle and high priest of our profession. That's why we're told to consider him. It's one thing to consider him in heaven. It's another thing to consider him here in our hearts. He must be the minister of this sanctuary. And this is why there is so much turmoil and there is so much debate and there is so much confusion over this issue. See, the devil knows and understands the work of Christ very well. That's why he has sought to obscure it through false ideas and doctrines. And people get up in arms and say, oh, you're going on this issue and this is a side issue and so on and so forth, not realizing this has to do with, this has everything to do with the most fundamental foundation of our faith as a people. It's a real wonder that the devil has gotten us as Adventists who pride ourselves in believing in the sanctuary to deny the high priest of that sanctuary and his work in this temple. That, that is a real blow from Satan. That's why we're told to consider Christ as our high priest. This is a collective problem for us today. And I want us to think of ourselves really as one. We 
don't have that much time left. I'm just finishing here. But in Adventism, and like I said, when I talk about Adventism, I'm using that term in its broadest possible meaning. Adventism, whether in the church, out of the church, independent, dependent, offshoot, upshoot, down, whatever you want to call it. We are really all, whether we like it or not, in the same boat. We tend to think of the as Adventists, you know, there is them and there is us. And they don't believe like us. And we are somehow a little better than them because they're not up to our level. And that's a sad problem. But God looks at us as his people. And we are his professed people who are called upon to finish the work. Now, you remember that Israel had different tribes. Isn't that right? And some tribes were more faithful than other tribes. And sometimes the tribes would fight with each other and they would argue with each other and they would accuse each other of heresy and, and they would go to war with each other. But at the end of the day, they were all Israel. Isn't that right? That's how God considered them. And uh, we need to remember that at the end of the day, we are all from the same stock. And uh, that spirit and that attitude of us and them that betrays a feeling of spiritual superiority is something that we really need to lose. You know, when Daniel prayed his prayer and confessed uh, his sin, what was his sin that he confessed? It was the sin of his people, isn't that right? It was the sin of his people. How many times have you and I confessed that sin as a people? You know, we, we tend to think of ourselves individually. We don't think in the bigger picture as a collective. There is a collective that we have an Adventist problem, an international global Adventist problem. Anyone who's ever subscribed to that name in any way, shape or form, we have a collective problem. You know, we might not be going to certain congregations and belonging to certain groups, but how does heaven look at us? That's the question we need to ask ourselves. And isn't the fact that the devil has caused this problem, this, this false theology has come in, this, isn't that why we are crippled as a people? That's something that's, that's worth considering. And uh, while we look at the Adventist aspect and, and, and the greater picture, I want to bring it a little bit home, closer to home to us as well. Because, you know, we believe in the truth about God as Godhead believers, whatever you want to call it. We uh, many times talk about, you know, the problems and sure they believe that they don't believe this, we believe this, and we see ourselves in essence, as uh, set apart in some sense. And, and there's, there's a lot of truth to that, that you know, we're told that the great cleaver of truth sets apart a people. And when God restores truth, there are people who stand for the truth to be restored and others who don't. And eventually they are left uh, by the wayside. But the sad fact of the matter is we have a problem ourselves. Same problem, really. Because even in the Godhead movement, we have... A tribal mentality, don't we? The tribes of the movement. You know, and some tribes are against these tribes. Isn't that right? It's just like Israel. Oh, it's really, really sad. And, and I say this not, not, to, not to knock anyone in particular. I'm in the same problem. This is a collective problem that we have. And, and it's only until we start facing the facts that we can have any hope of fixing the problem. You know, the problem is really bad because... You know, as I said, we have a tribal situation and this tribe fights with that tribe and this tribe won't talk to that tribe and this tribe here won't attend the gatherings of that tribe there 
And these tribes here, they band together and they form a coalition of the willing against those tribes over there. And the situation is really, really pathetic. How does heaven look down and view this situation? And we might believe in the truth, but at the same time, we do not manifest the fruit of the high priest working. Do you think Christ is happy looking at this mess? You know, Christ is doing the same thing he did outside the wall of Jerusalem. He stands there and he is weeping because his people have somehow missed the boat. And that's all of us. And I don't want us to sit here and think, oh, that's good that he's talking about them. And I'm talking to us right here. You know, if you think I'm talking about uh, someone specific, I'm talking about everyone. We have a collective problem. You see, the building, the restoring of the temple, the building of the temple that Christ is seeking to restore is made up of lively stones. These lively stones are you and me. The temple is not made of one stone. The temple was made of many stones. And Christ is shaping and hewing the stones. And I want to tell you something. The stones are not all identical size and shape. Did you know that? You know, it's sad that somehow the devil has deceived us into thinking, you know, unless that stone looks just like me and talks just like me, it doesn't qualify to be in the sanctuary. That's the mentality that we have today, isn't that right? And we think, well, every stone has to be just like me and same size, any different, that stone is not qualified to be in the sanctuary. Well, who died and made you the designer and engineer of the sanctuary? That is, it is atrocious. It is assuming a right that only Christ has. Christ is the builder of the sanctuary. Doesn't the Bible say, and he shall build the temple of the Lord and he shall bear the glory and he will sit and he will be the priest. And he is using different stones to build the sanctuary. It is a sad, sad reality that we have hit a brick wall as far as all these issues are concerned. And do you know something? Uh, I, I, I find it really sad because I, I talk to a lot of young people. I kind of, uh, I still consider myself young people category, or I'm kind of in the middle. Uh, but I talk to a lot of young people and it's really sad because the effect that that has on a lot of the young people especially is devastating. There are a lot of young people who are struggling to hold on to their faith because of this tribalism that they see among the believers who really have all the truth, which is what we claim, isn't that right? I've had many conversations with young people, and it's really sad because, and I'm going to speak plainly, and it's, it's good to speak plainly sometimes, so I hope I don't upset anyone, but if I do, that's okay, you can forgive me, you're Christians. You know, these young people, they look at the situation and say, this leader and that leader, and, and, and they're fighting with each other and writing things against each other and making things about this and that and the other. And this whole tribalism, that is so discouraging for young people. I want to tell you something. I want to tell you something very plainly. You know, these leaders that do that, as far as I'm concerned, are so-called leaders. There's no leader in God's work that will go around tearing down the sanctuary and deciding on their terms which stones fit in the sanctuary or not. And when you're trying to promote and restore the true sonship and position of Christ, and you're doing that work, you are really shooting yourself in the head. 
Brethren, we really need to wake up to reality and really ask the question, who is your high priest? And you know, I don't want to sit there and comfort yourself, okay, well, it's good they do that, I'm not doing that. I'm talking to us, each and every one of us, because we are so prone into joining in the party on which tribe are you in, on this tribe and that tribe, and the, you know, all the eastern tribe in the east of Jordan attacking the west of the Jordan, and it's a real tragedy that we have today. Let's go to Proverbs 13. Proverbs chapter 13. You know, all these issues are really not the problem itself. I don't know if you realize that. All these issues that are happening are only symptoms of a deeper problem. They are not the problem itself. Proverbs chapter 13 gives us a diagnosis of what the real problem is. Proverbs chapter 13, and we will look there at verse 10. We're almost done. Proverbs 13 and verse 10. What's it say here? Only by pride cometh contention. But the, with the well-advised is, is wisdom. Isn't that interesting? You see, these issues that are happening, these are all symptoms of a deeper problem. Only by pride, the Bible says, cometh contention and strife and debate and animosity and differences and all this tribalism. The real problem is Christ is not really the high priest of this temple. That's the real problem that we have collectively as a people. Because remember, you might be okay, you know, the other one might be okay. The, the temple is not made of a few stones. The temple is made of many stones. And we, each one, have to be a stone in its place. James chapter 3. James chapter 3. Let's go to James quickly, chapter 3. <clears throat> James chapter 3. book of James chapter 3, it tells us here in verse 16, speaking about the same thing, James chapter 3 and verse 16 says, for where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. Isn't that right? What's another word for confusion? That's the B word, huh? You know, sometimes you think we like to apply Babylon to anyone over there. Not here. But here it tells us very plainly where there is strife and there is envy and all this stuff that's happening. That's confusion. And it doesn't matter how much you believe in a sanctuary doctrine. If Christ is not the, uh, the minister and the high priest of this sanctuary, and if the fruit of his work is not seen in this sanctuary, then your belief in sanctuary doctrine is absolutely useless. It'll do you nothing. Don't think God's going to stand at the gate of heaven and say, well, I believe in the sanctuary doctrine, Lord. He'll say, come right in. No. If Christ is not the high priest of this temple, you can forget about believing in a sanctuary doctrine. It'll do you no good. So this is the challenge I want to give to you today, brothers and sisters. We have confusion. We have too many sellers and merchants in the temple of God's people today. And we need to invite Christ to cleanse the temple. You know, the cleansing of the temple, we can't do that. Christ is the only one who can cleanse the temple. No one else can do that. We, it's, God didn't leave it up to us. You know, God didn't tell Peter, grab a whip and you take care of that corner. And any self-appointed cleansers of the camp are not delegated by Christ. 
It's, it's a simple fact. Only he is qualified to cleanse the camp. And so it is very, very dangerous when we begin to think that we have been given authority to do that which we haven't. It only causes all these problems. First Thessalonians 3. First Thessalonians 3. And I hope that you will think of the sanctuary doctrine in a different light as a result of what we're talking about today. First Thessalonians chapter 3. <clears throat> Verse 12 and 13, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. Sorry, I'm in 2 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 12. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love, one toward another, and toward all men, even as we toward you, to the end that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. You know, the two great commandments is to love God with all the heart and to love our, our neighbor. Loving our neighbor does not look like tribes fighting. That's not what it's supposed to look like. It's actually the sign that Jesus gave that all men will know that we are his Disciples, that's the stones that line up in the sanctuary to shoulder that form the entire structure. And what's it say here in verse 13? To the end that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness. What's another word for holiness? Righteousness. Isn't that right? So righteousness, which is by faith, as we all know, has to do with how we behave towards the other stones in the sanctuary. It's that simple. That has to do with everything to do with righteousness by faith. It is the loving your neighbor as yourself. And this is what I want to challenge you with today because there's always the temptation to, when treated in a certain way, to react and respond in a similar manner. And in the process, we miss righteousness by faith. The preparation of righteousness by faith is this love among the brethren. And that's why it says, to the end that he may establish you, unblameable and in holiness before God, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So that's what we're looking for, isn't that right? Adventist, the Advent, the second Advent. The preparation for the Advent is to stand in holiness. In order to stand in holiness, we must have that fervent love for the brethren, for the other stones in the temple. Now, they might not be a stone that looks like you, or is shaped quite like you, or thinks like you, or not even speaks like you. But we have no right to say, I don't want to stand next to this stone. I want to pick that corner over there. We are not the builders, brothers and sisters. Let us not stand in condemnation and say, this stone is fit, this stone is unfit. That work, if we do that work, we are severely deceived by the enemy. Our last text is in Ephesians chapter 2. I'll just close with this text. Ephesians chapter 2. Who is really your high priest? That's the question. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 21. We'll read from verse 20 actually, so we can get some context. Verse 20. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself 
being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? That's a beautiful promise. All these different stones, the building blocks of the temple are built, they're fitly framed together. That means they fit really snug, real nice. And not only do they fit, but they grow together for a habitation of the Lord. You see, Christ wants to be the high priest, not of individual temples solitarily, but he wants to build a temple, a habitation for him. That's the ultimate demonstration that God has succeeded in restoring humanity to be a dwelling place for him. See, when God intended Adam and Eve to be a temple, he didn't intend that some would be a temple and others would not. Everyone would be a temple. And so that's why God wants his people together to be a collective representation of our belief in the sanctuary doctrine. That's what it's all about. Our belief in the sanctuary doctrine has to be reflected in our lives. We can't stand and say, well, this stone here looks like this. I don't want to be next to that stone. That is really, really sad news. That is really sad news. You know, the, one, the final thought I want to leave with you is... Uh, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. You remember that story? I think we all know it. You know, they all slept. But uh, the foolish virgins neglected to have something. They neglected to have oil. The oil is the symbol of the spirit. The oil is the light as well. It gives the light. So in other words, the oil, that spirit is really none other than Christ being the high priest. And you know, we're told that the foolish virgins are not uh, unbelievers. They are people who enjoyed the truth, enjoyed listening to the truth, and rejoiced in the messages of present truth. But they neglected to make Christ really the high priest of this temple. And when the critical moment came, and they woke up and they realized that they did not have the light, how is it that they realized that they did not have the light? When they saw that the others had a light shining. It's interesting that the wise didn't have to go to the foolish and tell them off or condemn them or, or say anything to them. Simply by their light shining, that was a convicting testimony that they did not have something. And what they did not have was Christ as the high priest. I'm saying Christ as the high priest because when they went in and they came knocking at the door too late, Christ said, I never what? Knew you. So it doesn't matter how much understanding of theology and doctrine you might have. That's what the foolish virgins had. They had an understanding of the truth. But they did not have a living high priest ministering in this temple. And Jesus said, I did not know you. So I want to challenge you with this thought. I want to ask you a question again. Who really is your high priest? How is it with you? How is it with me? Because brothers and sisters, we're living in troublous times. There's no question about that. You know, there's trouble within and without. And we're told there's more to fear from within than from from without. And the enemy is busy trying to tear down the temple that the Lord is seeking to build. So I want to encourage you to make the, our calling and our election sure. As the apostle says, consider Christ. Don't just consider him up here. Consider him as the high priest of your temple. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.